Joining me on the show today is Kevin Brown. Now, you might know Kevin as .com, and he was on the hugely successful series 30 Rock. He was in all seven seasons, and we chat about that and a whole lot more on the show today. Stay tuned. Welcome to Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and firstly, I do apologise for not having an episode out earlier this month. We will still give you two interviews, but uh, unfortunately, they will be both in this last week of August, and then we'll resume our normal of uh, one at the start, one at the end format in September. Now, as I said, joining me on the show today is uh, Dotcom. Now, he has won an award for this role, and he also started the Uptown Comedy Club, and they're now making a documentary about that. Um, so he talks about that as well as, obviously, his time on 30 Rock and his future in comedy. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my chat with Dotcom. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me. Now, at what point in your life did you know that you wanted to pursue a career in comedy? Oh boy, it was late. It was very late in life. Um, I used to be a promoter, so I promoted parties and such. And I did okay. I, I had a few extremely successful events. And then uh, I did a concert. I did a rap concert. And I lost all my money in this rap concert. <laughs> It was a big disaster. A riot broke out and everything went wrong and I lost all my money. And then um, as a result of that, I tried to, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life, you know, to mm -hmm. make up for all this money that I lost. And my brother, who was an aspiring comedian, he invited me to a comedy show that he was promoting. And... I had never seen, this is like, I was a kid, I was probably still in college, I was probably a junior in college, a sophomore in college, and I, I was depressed, so what am I going to do with my life, I lost all this money, I thought I had it made, and he invited me to this comedy show, I would never seen young black comedians performing in front of a young black audience before, and... I went to this show and it changed my life. Mm, obviously for the better. I, yeah, yeah. Because what happened was his host didn't show up. So I paid $20 for a ticket and I'm sitting in the audience and the show was 15 minutes late, 20 minutes late, 30 minutes late, 45 minutes late. And finally he comes to me after we, after we all waited in the audience for 45 minutes. He comes and asks me to host the show. And I'm like, dude, I'm not a comedian. I don't know how to host no comedy show. And he said, just do me a favor. None of the comics want to do it. And you have a great personality. Just go talk to the people. So he begged me to host the show. And since I just lost all my money in this concert, I said, well, you got to give me my $20 back for my ticket. <laughs> and uh, I ended up hosting the show. And I had a ball. I had a ball. It was like the most hilarious thing that I ever saw. And I figured if I love it so much, then other people have to love it too. Definitely. And we ultimately, you know, I made a deal with my brother to ultimately do the, um, to do the comedy show on a regular basis. So I started out as a comedy club owner. And that's what led me into ultimately becoming a comedian and an actor. Mm. Now, you mentioned there that you did manage uh, a comedy club, the Uptown Comedy Club. What did your job there actually entail? Uh, well, basically, 
basically there was no organization. The comics had no organization at this time. This is 25 years ago. So there was no rules to the comedy scene. The, the urban comedy market didn't even exist. Like this is before Comic View, before Wild and Out, before Deaf Comedy Jam. None of that existed until after uh, the Uptown Comedy Club. But what we had to do was organize the comedians and teach them how to do comedy properly, teach them how to negotiate deals, teach them how to, you know, sign contracts, how to write jokes, all that kind of stuff. So uh, since I didn't have the money, I couldn't afford to pay the comedians. I told them if they perform on my stage and help me keep my doors open, then I will give them advice and counsel on how to advance their careers. So it was like a happy, uh, happy union. It sounds like it. And obviously you found a lot of new comedy talent through the club. How did you find those new and upcoming comedians? Just, I, just spread, I just spread the word. I just spread the word. Uh, the first thing that happened was clubs were not paying these young comedians. So a lot of them were doing comedy for you know a couple of years and they never got paid for a show. Like a club would pay them a, a free dinner, a free spaghetti dinner, or you get two free drinks or something, but they weren't paying them cash. So when I came up with the idea, I said, I can teach you guys how to finally get paid for your work. So I asked the comedians to round up all their friends in comedy, come down for a meeting, and I'm going to teach you guys how to finally make some money doing stand-up. Yeah. So I came yeah. up with this, this innovative re, uh, idea, and then everybody started making some money. Mm. It's something that definitely needs to happen more in the arts and comedy scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, do you think it's important for performers now to do something like this and have more than one string to their bow to make a living in this industry? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I believe in multiple streams of income. And a lot of times when I try to explain that to the comedians, they look at me like I'm, you know, speaking Japanese or something like that. But, you know, the way the way the economy is and, you know, the way careers ebb and flow, you have to, you know, you have to do a bunch of different things. I remember when I was in, when I was in uh, junior high school, for example, we call it junior high school here. It's like seventh grade or sixth grade. We used to go to, uh, what do they call these, guidance counselors. And I don't know if they have guidance counselors. I don't know if guidance counselors still exist or if they have them in your neck of the woods. They do. They definitely but, have them here. Okay. So the guidance counselor, you go, you tell the guidance counselor what you want to be when you grow up. And they tell you what your chances are and what you have to do to, you know, achieve that goal. But back then, back then, and excuse, excuse the noise in the background. That's I, I got a little one running around. But, um, yeah, so the guidance counselor would tell you how to achieve your goal. And you would, you would, the idea was to go get a job and then you retire and live happily ever after. But nowadays, people are, you're constantly reinventing yourself because if you get a job when you're 19 
and you work it for 20 years, you can retire and you're only 39 years old. You're 40 years old. So what do you do if, if you're 39, 40, 41, you retire from your job, you get a, a pension, what are you going to do with the next 25 years of your life? You know? Mm. Now, back in those days, we used to look at that as the end of your life. But when you're 39, you're young now. You know, they say 39 is the new 29 or 40 is the new 30. You know, so you really have to consider what's the next thing you like to do. Like when a, when a basketball player retires from the NBA or, or a football player retires from the NFL, you know, they're retiring, they're in their early 30s. What are they going to do with the next 25, 30 years of their life, 40 years of their life? You have to generate other streams of income something that you love doing, something that you can support yourself to a certain level. And I feel the same way with comedians. So in comedy, you, if you're a comedian, you also have to be an actor. You know, if you're a comedian, you also have to be a writer. And all of those uh, creative outlets can generate income. And that's what creates the multiple streams of income. Most certainly. And I suppose you've also set up a production company. How did that come about? Well, I've always had these ideas that, uh, that I thought were missing from the comedy game. And I, looked, I got blessed and I got the show 30 Rock and uh, it took me, you know, it, it changed everything for me. But I still had the itch to create some of my visions. So when 30 Rock was, was getting towards the end of its run, or what we thought was the end, uh, maybe by season five, we were all preparing to get the call saying that the show was going to be canceled and we were all preparing for what our next thing was going to do. So what I decided I was going to do was instead of going out and trying to find me a new job, trying to find me a new TV show, now would be a perfect time to start creating my own ideas, creating my own TV shows, creating my own movies and things like that. So uh, I made a list of every creative idea that I ever had and I just started bringing them to life just started executing them mm. and that's where my production company is it was like me preparing for life after 30 Rock now we will talk about 30 Rock a little bit later on but so what what projects are you currently developing or working on with your production company well I did a I did a comedy I did my first feature film it's a documentary and it tells the story of that comedy club that uh, I created back, you know, 25 years ago. It's a documentary called The Uptown Comedy Club, The Birth of Hip-Hop Comedy. This was, my club was where hip-hop comedy was created. Uh, up until that time, if you went to a comedy club, it was, it was sort of cabaret style. So if you go to any comedy club across the country, on every stage, there was a stool, a microphone, and a piano. But when, when I opened my club, we didn't bring in a piano. We brought in a DJ. So when we brought a DJ playing the hottest hip-hop music with the, the hottest young comedians in this hot new audience, that's where hip-hop comedy was born. So that's what my documentary is called. I mean, that's a pretty impressive legacy to leave on an industry. How do you feel about that? You know, it's 20 years ago or so. How do you look back on that time of your life? 
Well, you know, the, the, the way I look at it is it's a story that nobody knows because I never told the story before. You know, so there were, there were other people trying to take credit for things that I created for, for some reason. You know, nobody ever, nobody ever spoke up about it. You know, so it just looked like all of these young urban comedians just came out of thin air. But um, so for me, it's a story that that needs to be told. And who best to tell this story about my club? Who will tell it better than I would? Absolutely. And when will that documentary be made available so our listeners can have a look at it? Well, it's in it's in uh, post-production now. So we're in the final stages. The biggest thing, the biggest problem was when I and, and this is a, this is a good problem to have. But as a result of me getting on uh, on a TV show. I became very popular. So back then, I didn't have any desire to be a stand-up comedian. I didn't try to get in front of the camera. But when I, by the time I shot the documentary, you know, I became a celebrity myself. So everybody took my calls. Everybody was calling me when they heard the word that I was doing this documentary. So I now have about 40 hours of interviews, maybe 42 hours of interviews <laughs> from... People like Mike Epps, J.B. Smooth, Tony Rock. Um, I mean, I have I have some great comedians. I got clips from Tracy Morgan. Uh, just great comedians that all came through or started at the Uptown Comedy Club. And I have to edit this 42 hours of interviews down to a 78-minute documentary. So it's... It's so hard to do because I have so much great stuff and I don't have the, this, this short, this film, you know, 70 minutes, 78 minutes is not enough to tell this whole story. So that's the hard part. I'm hoping I can make a decision and have it all ready by um, beginning of 2016. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I have my hands full right now. <laughs> I, I wish you the best with editing 42 hours of interviews. Yes, yes. Thank now, you. uh, as you've mentioned, you a lot of people know you from 30 Rock. What was the auditioning process like for the show? Well, you know what? It was it was a real it was a real short process because I didn't want the job. Like I wasn't impressed by the opportunity. When uh if you can think back to 2006 Nobody knew who Tina Fey was in 2006. She was the, she was the head writer on SNL. She was the first female head writer, but nobody was really watching SNL at that time. So if you if you recall, SNL been on since most of us were alive, but it has its great years, like the Eddie Murphy years are probably the greatest it's ever seen, and then it has its lean years. So when I heard about this show, it wasn't even called 30 Rock at the time, it was called the Tina Fey Unnamed Project. I didn't know who Tina Fey was, I didn't care, I didn't really want the opportunity, so I wasn't impressed, and uh, they called me and I said, no, thank you, they called me again, I said, no, thank you, and then the woman that called me asked me to do her a favor and just go down. So, like I said, I didn't, I didn't want the job, I wasn't impressed by it, and I go to the to the interview. I sit down from the director, and he says, "You have any questions?" And I wasn't impressed, so I said, "No." And he said, "Okay, thanks for coming." And I said, "You're welcome. Bye." And that was it. And I left. 
And a few months later, I get a call. I was one of the guys they picked to be part of Tracy Morgan's crew. We called it the posse at the time. And uh, it was pretty much just that simple. Mm. Now, obviously, the role evolved a lot over the show. Is it true that you weren't given any dialogue until they found out you had previously taken acting classes? I don't, you know, it wasn't, I don't know if that is, I don't know if it's that simple. Uh, initially, I didn't have any dialogue. You're right about that. I was there to be featured background. But um, I think that they found out that I, that I, that there was more to me than, than meets the eye. So I think they found out that I had taken acting. I think they found out that I was a stand-up comic. And I had also done, uh, I had also made it to like the semifinals of Last Comic Standing. I think season two of Last Comic Standing, I, I, I did okay. I didn't make it into the house, but I made it to like the semifinals. So it being an NBC show, I think some of the NBC suits had seen me go through the process. And maybe the whispers were like, hey, I think that guy looks familiar. I think I saw him somewhere. So no one ever told me exactly what happened, but whatever it was, the whole combination of things, they liked what I was doing. And one day they said, you know, the writers like what you're doing and they're going to write you in uh, and give you lines from time to time. And I said, does that mean I get paid more money? And they were like, yeah. And I said, well, sign me up. Let's do it. Now, um, how much of yourself was actually put into the role of .com? Well, it seemed like all of me, like the, the, the character was a great deal like me. Uh, the, the writers on 30 Rock were incredible because they, they would hang out around us and listen to our conversations, just listen to us in the dressing room, listen to how me and, and Tracy Morgan interacted. And they would take the, our, our patterns and put it right into the script. So it wasn't, they wouldn't go word for word, but when we read the dialogue, the dialogue sounded like things we would have said. So they, they were really great writers. Mm. And were they ever open to your ideas about the character if you, you know, came to them with any suggestions? Oh, no, they were, I never came to them. <laughs> <laughs> I've been, luckily I had been in the game long enough to know the, Best actors uh, just shut up and wait for you to tell us what to do. Very you know? much so. So I was, I was so, I was so happy to be there, and so happy to have a job that you know I was not trying to to share my ideas and mess anything up. Now um, you were on the show for all seven seasons. How did your character develop? over the, uh, the run of the show? You know, it was, it was an amazing ride because if you, if you recall the opening of the show, my face was not one of those faces at the, at the beginning of the show. They had, they had the, the series regulars already picked out. And what I realized in a 30-minute show... You know, there's, there's basically 21 minutes of show and the rest is commercials. So 
with the cast the size of, of what we had, and I was probably number 16 or 17 on the call sheet. So that, that basically meant if I'm number 17, there's 16 people who are higher on the totem pole than I am. So uh, an amazing thing happened. When they told me they were going to start writing me in, they would, they would call me and, like, if, if Oprah Winfrey was supposed to be in the episode that she was supposed to shoot today, you know, being the all-powerful Oprah that she is, sometimes she's not available. But they have the camera set up. They have the state, the studio ready. But if Oprah can't make it, they can't shoot with her. And then I just get a call. Hey, Kevin, where are you? I'll be like, well, I'm right across the bridge at home. Can you get here in 10 minutes? We need you to shoot today. And I'll be like, sure. <laughs> I jump in the shower, throw my clothes, and I get there in nine minutes. And then they'd shoot an episode because somehow they figured out that the Grizz and Dot Com characters were always good for a big laugh. Mm, very you know? much so. So they would, they would call us a lot. And at the last minute, we would, we would just be used. So what turned out to be a few episodes, the first season, we did 22 episodes. I think I was in 17 out of 22 episodes. So they just kept calling. They just kept calling. And every time they passed me the ball, I try to make the highlight real and I try to make the lines that were on paper as funny as can be. And I think you certainly achieved that. Thank you. Now, one thing about why the show worked so well was your rapport with Grizz and Tracy. Was that there from the moment you met, or was it something that developed over time working with the actors? Say, wait, say the question one more time? Sorry. That's all right. Um, one thing about the show that worked so well was your rapport with Grizz and Tracy. Was that there from the moment you met, or was it something that developed over time while you were working with the actors? Oh, no, that was, that was there from the moment we met. What, what had happened was, since I, since I had known Tracy from the Uptown Comedy Club, we had a great relationship already. Like, our chemistry was so natural. I hadn't, but what happened was I hadn't seen Tracy in about eight years. But Tracy started his comedy career at the Uptown Comedy Club. That's where it all came full circle. So he started at the Uptown Comedy Club, and I was actually his first manager back in the days. He was one of those comics who I would give the advice and counsel to. So I guided him in his career, put him in my new Jack workshops, taught him how to be extra funny, booked him for shows. So we had a we had a long history, but I had not seen him for eight years prior to Thirty Rock, and then we see we see each other for the first time in eight years on the set of Thirty Rock when we're there shooting the first day, and it was like. Two, two high school buddies, two, two elementary school buddies reuniting. So all of our chemistry was just the way we treat each other. You know, we were just happy to see each other in a whole new environment. You know, it wasn't in the, in the streets of Harlem at this time. It was in a real Hollywood network production. And it was just amazing that both of us ended up there at the same time. It certainly so, was. Yeah, so the, the chemistry was just natural. Mm. Now, how would you describe the relationship between yourself and Tracy? 
Well, you know, it, our, our relationship evolved. Uh, when I first met him, I was like his, his big uncle. You know, I taught him. I guided him. But when, I, when we reconnected on the set of 30 Rock, he was one of the stars of the show. So our whole role had reversed. You know, he was, he was the star of the show, and I was a guy just happy to be there. So I had known he had taken a journey from, you know, by then he had done Martin, he had done Saturday Night Live, he had also had his own sitcom. So he had gone places in Hollywood and through his career that I had never been. So I was, I was, so, I was a fan of his. The thing is, we were friends, but I was also, and I still am also a big fan of his work. He was like one of the only comics who could really make me laugh. So when I had the opportunity to work with him in this capacity, now that he's Tracy Morgan, the star, I had no problem watching him work and learning from him and, and just observing what it's like to be a star of a show. Hmm. Quite interesting. So could you take us through an average day on set for you? Well, you know what? The average day's changed. Like when we first, when the show first started, and it wasn't a hit at the time, our days were long. They would call us in, we'd have to get there at 7 a.m. and sit around for hours, even though they weren't going to use us till 5 p.m. They would keep us there, they would call us in, and we'd get there at 7 a.m., 6 a.m., 5 a.m., and just have us sit around until they used us eight hours later, ten hours later. But then the show became a hit. And once the show became a hit, everything changed because now the show is a hit. Not only is Tina Fey a, a superstar now, Alec Bowen's a superstar now. Even we, the lonely players, we became stars. So I think Alec Bowen made the, the, the most drastic change. He said to, to NBC... I'll give you three days out of the five-day work week. I'll, I'll give you three days. You pick the three days, but that's all I'll give you, and you have to shoot all my scenes within those three days. So once Alec Baldwin made that rule, laid down the law, if you were in a scene with Alec Baldwin and, and that scene was, was scheduled for him to work on Tuesday then you worked on Tuesday, and you shot everything on Tuesday. And then if, if the only scenes you were in were with Alec and your stuff was out the way, there was no more bringing you in at 7 a.m. and not shooting till 5 p.m. It was, now it's, if you're, if you're shooting at 7 a.m., then they bring you in at 7 a.m. If you're shooting at 5 p.m., then they bring you in at 5 p.m. No wasting our time. No having us hang around. It was it was all so like they were treating us like stars. We went we went from you know taking the train to the set to we'll we'll send a car to pick you up. You know, ev I mean everything changed. Mm, you know, very much for the better by the class. sounds of it. Oh yeah, yeah. We're, we're flying you first class to the Emmy Awards. You know, limos interviews, paparazzi. I mean, it, it just, it, it happened just like the movies. 
Mm-hmm. Well, is there a particular moment from filming the show that stands out in your memory you could tell our listeners about? You know, probably, probably the, the time we won the Emmy was the, was the most amazing time. Uh, 30 Rock won an Emmy. We, we were always nominated. We were always nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes and all that stuff. But the first couple of years, we didn't win anything. So, and we, you know, when you, when you get nominated for something and you don't win, you expect to not win. You expect to lose. Mm. So I wasn't even supposed to be at the Emmy Awards that year. But what happened was the, so many people didn't want to go because they knew they were going to lose. They were like, eh, I'm not going. So they had all these tickets available. So I get a call at the last minute. Hey, Kev, we got a couple extra tickets. You want to come to the Emmy Awards? And I'm like, well, y'all paying for everything? Yeah, sure, I'll go. So I get my, get my tuxedo out, just go for the trip. 30 Rock is nominated, and we're sitting there, and they, they started naming all the shows we were nominated against. And somehow 30 Rock won. So we're looking at each other, and we are stunned, because, you know, nobody expects, you, you, you never know that you're going to win. But after 30 Rock won, or when they announced 30 Rock's name, my seat was all the way in the back of the Emmy Award Theater, so I was happy to be there. I didn't care. So now we got to take this long journey up to the stage. And uh, I remember as Tina Fey was coming to the stage, I gave her a high five as she was uh, stepping up on the steps to the podium. And then after you win one of these awards, you don't get a chance to see the rest of the show because you go backstage and you get interviewed by everybody, every media outlet in Hollywood. You get interviewed by Entertainment Tonight, uh, the E! Channel, People Magazine, MTV, uh, TMZ. I mean, every, every Hollywood entity is there. And you get interviewed for about 45 minutes. So it, it was just that, that whole night, that whole circumstance was an amazing, amazing experience. And like I said nobody expected to win so a lot of people weren't there and then the next year everybody wanted their ticket everybody <laughs> wanted to go so it was hard to get it it was hard to get a ticket the next year but i just happened to be there and just happened to be you know available the year we won that was incredible mm-hmm. well uh, it would have been a truly amazing experience it was it was i remember seeing i was at one of the parties and i saw matt damon huge star so yeah. Uh, me and Grizz, we, we partnered up at the parties and we were like, let's go around and take pictures with all these celebrities. So we go, hey, that's Matt Damon. Let's go try to get a picture with Matt Damon. So we're, we're approaching Matt Damon just before we get a chance to say, hey, Matt Damon, can we take a picture with you? Matt Damon looks at us and says, Grizz.com, can I take a picture with you guys? <laughs> and we look at each other and we are stunned because all these huge stars knew who we were, were fans of our work, and wanted to be on the show. Mm, and that's, it, was just, yeah. it was just incredible. Certainly would have been. But speaking of awards, you also won an award for your role at the 15th Annual Screen Actors Guild Award. Um, yes, I have. I won a Screen Actors Guild Award, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. <laughs> that's all right. I mean, could you ever predict such an outcome, I suppose, in your wildest dreams when you first signed on for the show? No, there's no way. There's no way to predict it. I always thought... 
as a TV fan, I always thought the Big Bang Theory was the funniest show on TV. But nobody else thought so, apparently. Like, they, like Big Bang Theory now wins every year, and everybody knows how funny it is now. But back then, it wasn't getting the credit that it deserved. So, you know, as, as uh, an artist... If we were ever nominated against the Big Bang Theory, I felt like they should have won, even though we were winning. But um, yeah, I, you could you can never could never predict that kind of stuff. Mm. Now, obviously, I think you mentioned you had some amazing guest stars on Thirty Rock, as well as I mean, obviously your your leading stars, Tina Fey and Alec Baldwin. Did you have a favorite guest star to work with over the seven years? Yes. Oh, um, my favorite guest star was John Hamm. When, when me and John Hamm met, we just hit it off. It was like we were buddies that, that used to, you know, play ball in the park together. You know, I, I had seen this show called Mad Men, and I thought the character Don Draper, he was every man. You know, he, all, the, all the women wanted to be with him and all the men wanted to be him. So I was a fan of that show from day one, from episode one. And, but Marjorie wasn't on a major network. It was on, you know, AMC or whatever it's on. I forgot. But I loved the show and I loved this guy. And then when he showed up on the set, I was just in awe. I was so surprised that he was there. And at that time, I was one of the few people that had watched the show. So it was like, hey, man, I watch the show all the time, and I, I love the show, and I love your work, and let me show you around. So I'm taking John Hamm around, and I'm showing him around. And ultimately, you know, his show became a big hit. He became a huge star and whatever. But when we first, when he, the first day he walked on the set, it was like we had a bond from way back, and I'd never met him before. Mm-hmm. Those moments must really stand out, I suppose, reflecting on those, those 30 Rock years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Now, in addition to 30 Rock, you also perform stand-up. How do you go about developing a routine? Ah, that, that's the hardest thing in the world. Developing a routine is diff- very difficult. Like, it can take me six months to a year to take a joke that I think is funny and actually put it on stage in front of an audience. So it's the, that's the hardest thing you're ever going to do in life doing it consistently hardest thing in the world mm-hmm. it certainly sounds like it it is it is now how... go, I'm go sorry on. you go through a transition like the average the average young person the average person who says they want to be a comic you spend most of your career being unknown you know you perform mm-hmm. at a comedy night where people didn't come to see you they just came to see comedians so then you, if you're fortunate, you make that leap to a point where you're a draw, where people know your name and they're coming because you're there. They're coming because they love your work. They're fans of your work. And that journey to get from being the anonymous comedian, the unknown comedian, to being the marketable draw, that journey is an adventure all by itself. Mm, it certainly would be. So how do you think the comedy industry has changed since you first started working in it? 
Well, the comedy industry has changed a lot. One of the reasons the Uptown Comedy Club was created was because the mainstream audiences or the mainstream clubs would censor the black comedians. So the the stuff that there were so many things that so many things on the list that they could not talk about. The the comedy club owners, the comedy bookers at the mainstream places like Caroline's, Catch a Rising Star, the Improv, or whatever, all the mainstream downtown clubs, they would tell the young urban comedians, well, you can't talk about this. You shouldn't talk about that. Nobody really wants to hear this. So there were so many things they could not say. And then when they put the young urban comedians on, if they put them on after you know, after the show is pretty much done, you know, if it's, if it's a 10 o'clock show, uh, you put the, they put all their other comedians on first, and then 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, let's put that young black kid on, you know, give mm-hmm. him a few minutes. But by then, the room isn't filled anymore. There's seven people in the room. They're all drunk. They're all sleepy. So it was, it was definitely, uh, a hurdle for comedians to to cross. So one of the that's one of the main reasons that the Uptown Comedy Club was created to give those comedians an an, an audience to perform in front of and not censor them at all. We didn't censor anything that they said. If they wanted to talk about food stamps and welfare and cockroaches and whatever and the streets and drugs and and if it was funny, we let them do it. They must and have really appreciated that freedom. It, it changed everything. It changed everything. So now, as a result, you know, we have it, that opening that door made all of these stars, you know, it made the kings of comedy possible. You know, it, it made Bernie Mac and Steve Harvey and Cheryl Underwood and all these talented comedians who are now, who've now crossed over to not just stardom, but superstardom and mainstream, you know, it, it just changed everything. It certainly sounds like it. So what role do you think comedy plays in today's society? You know, comedy, when they say comedy is, um, comedy is the best medicine, you know, I think, I think people need a laugh. I think that, you know, we live in a, we live in an age where we get access to information from all over the world now. You know, there was a time before the internet where when you turned on the news, it was just telling you the local news. You know, uh, you're, you're in Australia, right? I am, yeah. So you would turn on the news and it would just be news in Australia. I would turn on the news and it would just be news in New York, news in the Bronx. But now... If something happens over there, I'll hear about the news over there just as quickly as you hear about it over there. You know? Very true. And and with that, with that access to news, with that access to to information, to entertainment, to everything, uh, people have well, one thing is people have shorter shorter attention spans. So with with social media, things like Vine, 
you have I think it's six seconds. You have six seconds or fifteen seconds. I don't know. You have to you have to catch people and get their into get their attention in six seconds. You have to catch people and get and and hold their attention for fifteen seconds. And those things that didn't exist, you know, twenty years ago. So with comedy, comedy has changed because now you don't you don't really get like the throwback comedians. There were throwback throwback comedians back in the days like Bob Hope and and Rodney Dangerfield and the, these classic these classic talents. They were the huge they were the biggest stars, the biggest comedy stars, but you knew you knew their whole career path. You knew their whole career journey. Now, a kid with a camera who's good with Vine, you know, who's from Australia or New York or, you know, any country in Africa, they can get their camera, do something really funny, really zany, post it on the Internet, and now they're an Internet star, get, you know, three million hits. And nobody ever heard of them, you know. So it's it's the whole the whole dynamic of the game has changed because of that. Mm. And would you say that changes for better or for worse? I mean, it depends on who you ask. You know, the the change is hard. Change is hard for people. So I you know I remember seeing you know I was a big Elvis Presley fan when I was a kid, and I I remember seeing the controversy as a kid that. Uh, you know, oh, that rock and roll. We got to protect our kids from that rock and roll. And look how that guy moves his hips. We can't show that kind of stuff. And this music isn't going to last. And this is devil music and all that kind of stuff. And then the same thing happened with hip-hop music. You know, it's so violent and it's so against women and whatever. Uh, so the the older generation always misunderstands what what the next generation is attracted to. You know, it, it happens from generation to generation. So, um, you know, for, for my generation, we came up in an in a era where it wasn't about having a good show. It was, having, it was about having a good career. You know, you needed life experiences and you put it all together and... You, you try to make a name over the, you know, over decades. Now, you know, you can get this 15 minutes of fame. You can put a hot video on and 6 million people watch it and now you're a star and you have no, you know, you have no life experiences. You have no, you have no lawyer. You have no publicist. You have no protection. You have no knowledge of how you got there, but you're there. Mm. So, and looking back on it, you know, an old guy would say, old guy like myself would say, eh, I prefer to have the journey and the career. But, you know, whatever works for the young people. If it works, it works. All right. Well, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to work in the comedy industry? Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? You know what's funny? I, I, when I talk about things that I created, I created this game show called The One Joke Wonder. And The One Joke Wonder is pretty much how it sounds. It's a contest for non-comedians, for civilians, 
and it gives them the opportunity to come on stage in front of a room full of strangers at any comedy club across the country and tell one joke. So, you know, the, the biggest thing is a lot of people may want to be a comedian, but you don't want to give up your day job. Uh, a lot of people may have told jokes, but they've only told them to their friends or to their family at the family reunion or at Thanksgiving dinner table. But they've never experienced what it's like to get that introduction, have a couple of hundred people clapping for you. You go on stage, you tell your joke, how that audience of strangers is going to respond to your joke. And then you say goodnight. And then you go back home and go back to work the next morning and you move on with your life. So I created the joke. I mean, I created the joke contest because I feel like... Can you can you still hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, my, my computer did the, the timeout thing, so I thought maybe we were gone. Nope, still good. But, uh, but yeah, okay. Uh, but yeah, I created this joke contest because I saw that there is still a desire. People still want to experience what that's like, but they don't want to be a stand-up comic. So I, if... if if you want to be a stand-up comic, I say don't do it because it's just such a grind. I say keep your day job, keep your sanity, go to school, finish school. I say do all those things. But if you want to get a taste of what it's like to tell a joke and get the applause and get a, get a few hundred people laughing at the same time at something you did or something you said, that's what the contest is for. I think there's a void. I think that a lot of people have the desire. A lot of people want to try it. A lot of people nowadays think they're funnier than the comedians on stage. And a lot of people are funnier than the comedians on stage. And and this this contest gives that opportunity to prove it. Mm. And where can people find out about this contest? OneJokeWonder.com. I will put yes. a link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Wonderwonder.com. It's a website. It's a it's a show that I take on the road. Um, making it into a web series. I'm shopping it as a TV show. Uh, it's a national movement. It's a it's a comedy game show where the audience is the comedy star, and you can tell any joke. It could be a joke you wrote, a joke you saw on the internet, a joke your grandfather told you. An old joke, a new joke, a dirty joke, a clean joke, just tell any joke. And the the kicker is you win prizes, you win a trophy. I had a trophy specially made for the contest. So it's an official contest, trademarked and everything, and uh, gives gives the average person a, an opportunity to, to be a comedy star. Well, it certainly sounds like a, a fantastic idea. And okay. thank, thank you for your time and your wise words of advice. Ah, I appreciate I appreciate your time. I appreciate the interview. My pleasure. Well, that was my chat with .com. And all the links to his uh, Twitter and his Facebook are in the show notes, so you can uh, jump over there and follow him. Now, thanks to Madman Entertainment, I've had the opportunity to look at some wonderful films, including this month, two British classics. I checked out the are You Being Served movie. Now, this came out many, many years ago in the, the, the peak of the show, and it's now on DVD as part of the Britannia Film Collection, a big screen British comedy. And there's a whole range of uh, British comedy films that are coming out, thanks to Madman, and this one is absolutely one of my favourites. Um, it's filled with all the innuendo and jokes that uh, 
that the fans of the show love. And it does do some original stuff. It doesn't completely rehash TV material, although you will find a lot of the, the jokes uh, in the film throughout the TV series. And the exotic locations, I mean, uh, they look a little bit fake. and um, But it's still, it's still wonderful to see them travelling and, uh, you know, see them out of the store, which is wonderful. And the other comedy classic from the Britannia collection I've had the opportunity to review is On the Buses. Now, this one's a little bit less well-known. Um, the series itself ran for, I think, four or five seasons, but the movie didn't get as much publicity, and I think it's equally as good, if not funnier. Uh, so politically incorrect, but it is wonderful, and I do love it. Now, I also promised you that I would uh, check out the other two most recent series uh, of Murder, She Wrote DVDs, and I have, and they are both fantastic. So that's series seven and eight, and these series are equally as wonderful as the early ones. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of repetition. You're starting to see some similar storylines and a little bit of, um, you know, they're becoming more predictable if you've seen all the others, which I have to review. Um, so I think you can buy these series on their own. Every season of the show stands alone. So if you want to start at the end uh, or the middle, it doesn't matter. Uh, they, are, they, they do start to get a bit repetitive, but I do really enjoy this show. So I don't mind that repetitive nature or sometimes being able to guess who did it before they did. Now, I've also had the opportunity to check out a wealth of movies in the last month and a bit. The first movie I had a look at was Holding the Man. Now, this is an Australian film, and it's absolutely wonderful. It's very powerful, very sad and emotional, and while I reviewed that almost a month ago, it is out tomorrow, so that's Thursday. Now, the next film I saw was another Australian film called Last Cab to Darwin, and I checked this one out thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas. Now, this one... Uh, unfortunately didn't quite hit home. There are some good performances, but it's a lacking story, and it goes on for far, far too long. Then I saw the reboot of The Fantastic Four, and it is, well, like you've probably read by now, it's an abomination. Unfortunately, some things just weren't made to be rebooted, and this is one of them. The, uh, the younger cast just doesn't work, um, and the whole new setup story is also terrible. Now, the next one I saw was Irrational Man, and Irrational Man is superb. It's Woody Allen's new film with Joaquin Phoenix and Emma Stone, and it's sort of a modern interpretation of Crime and Punishment, uh, and it's wonderful. It really is a... I mean, it's very Woody Allen-esque, but it's a great film. And the next one I saw, thanks to Roadshow, was Man from Uncle. Uh, now, there were some funny elements, and it's not a truly awful film, but it's not great either. And the next film I saw, thanks to Universal Pictures, was Straight Outta Compton. Now, this has been getting critical acclaim worldwide, and it truly is a wonderful, powerful, emotional film, and I gave that one five stars. And then thanks to Buena Vista Entertainment, I saw She's Funny That Way. And uh, that only comes out tomorrow, but I reviewed it the other week, and it's a lot of fun. It has a lot of Wes Anderson homages. Uh, it's, it's very Wes Anderson-esque, or even... Woody Allen-esque, um, but it is very funny. It's a, it's a great ensemble comedy, and I do... If you're looking for a laugh, it's a great comedy. And more recently, I saw We Are Your Friends, which comes out in about a week in Australia and uh, on Friday in the States, and this is an abomination. It's hardly even worth reviewing. I gave that one zero stars, which is very rare, no matter how critical I can be. So as you can see, a wealth of films that I've checked out, predominantly thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas, but also thanks to uh, Picture This... Buena Vista, Roadshow, and Universal Entertainment. Unfortunately, there are still no DVD reviews uh, from Roadshow, but hopefully we'll have some more of those for you next month. Now, as I said, we will get another interview out uh, in August, so we still have our two episodes, but obviously they won't be spaced out. So look for another episode within the next 
couple of days. Well, I've been your host, Benjamin Man McKay. See you next time.